We are in a four-week sermon series working through the prophetic book of Malachi. It is the final book in the Old Testament, written about 400 years before the birth of Jesus. It's kind of like after Malachi, the Bible goes silent for almost 400 years until Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John come on the scene and begin to share with us the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The prophet Malachi tells us what happens when God's people stop worshiping him from their hearts. And he shows up what it looks like when people turn religion into routine. You see, after God returned the people of Judah to their own land, after they had lived so many years in exile, the people again fell into that long ingrained habit of taking God for granted while at the same time pursuing their own selfish desires. And so they suffered from spiritual apathy, from laziness, from boredom. They had become spiritually indifferent to God. And they were only going through the ritual motions. Their hearts were far from God. You know, spiritual apathy is still the enemy's number one weapon against the church. I mean, if he can replace the fervor that we once had for the things of God with apathy and indifference, then he separates us from God and, and makes our hearts far from him. We've seen in the first two weeks of this series how the people weren't bringing the best of their flocks for the temple sacrifices. No, instead they were bringing the blemished sheep, the runts, the, the leftovers. We saw how the priests who served in the temple had become unfaithful. We learned that divorce was commonplace and that men were marrying foreign women who brought their own foreign gods with them and in so doing led the men away from the one true God of Israel. Malachi 2.17 says, You have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying, all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them. Or where is the God of justice? You see, the people had twisted God's truth. They believed that what they were doing was okay with God because he was being so gracious with them and not immediately punishing them for their disobedience. Malachi continues the prophecy, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. And then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. Then the Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness and the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord, as in days gone by, as in former years. Here Malachi is prophesying about John the Baptist, who would come and prepare the way for Jesus. And then he foretells about Jesus himself, the Lord who will come to his temple. 
And like a silversmith that refines silver, melting it, removing the dross and purifying it until he can see his own reflection in it. This is a prophetic image of the way that God purifies us as we follow the ways of our Lord Jesus until Jesus' reflection is all that people can see when they look at us. Malachi concludes, So I will come to put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, and perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. You see, businessmen in Malachi's day were defrauding their workers. They were cheating their customers. They were taking advantage of widows and orphans and foreigners. But the most egregious treatment of God was that they were robbing God. They were withholding their tithes, and they were giving their leftovers. It's like their attitude was, what's the least amount that I can give to God and still keep him happy? Today we're going to talk about giving our best to God. And part of that has to do with the tithe. It reminds me of a story that I heard. There were two men who were shipwrecked on an island. And the minute they washed up on shore, one of the men started screaming and yelling, We're going to die. We're going to die. There's no food. There's no water. We're going to die. While the second man seemed so relaxed, he propped himself up against a coconut tree. He was acting so calm that he drove the first man crazy. And the man began to shout, Don't you understand we're going to die? And the second man said, no, you don't understand. I make $100,000 a week. And the first man looked at him like he was crazy. And he said, you don't get it. We're on an island with no food, no water. What good is your money going to do? We're going to die. And the second man said with great serenity, no, you just don't get it. I make $100,000 a week. And I tithe 10% of that to my church every Sunday. So I have no fears whatsoever. My pastor is definitely going to come and find me. <laughs> my friends, the tithe has been a part of God's plan almost from the beginning. During the time of Moses, when God was giving his law to the people, he commanded that a tithe of everything from the land belong to the Lord. And it was to be returned to God. But well before that, way back in the book of Genesis in chapter 14, we read about a time when Abraham had to go to war to rescue his nephew Lot, who had been captured by some enemies. Abraham went to war. He won that battle. He rescued his nephew Lot, all of his possessions, a number of other men and women who had also been captured. And he also took Many spoils of war. And on the way home from that battle, Abraham met Melchizedek, the king of Salem, who came bringing out bread and wine. Melchizedek was priest of God Most High. 
And Genesis 14.20 tells us that Abraham gave Melchizedek a tenth of everything. You see, giving God a tenth of everything goes almost all the way back to the beginning. But by the time of Malachi's day, the people had forgotten or they were ignoring this commandment. Let's pick back up with Malachi in verse 6. I, the Lord, do not judge. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you've turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Now, the word tithe comes from a Hebrew word that means one-tenth. For example, if you earn $100 today, a tithe of that would be $10. It's really simple math. And one of the purposes of the tithe is to support God's work. And one of the ways the tithe did this was by supporting the temple priests and also the Levites who were the helpers to the priests with all of the work of the temple. You may remember that Aaron, Moses' brother, was the very first priest. And all of the descendants of Aaron became priests in their own successive generations. Now Moses and Aaron were from the tribe of Levi. And of the 12 tribes of Israel, only the tribe of Levi didn't receive any land when the people entered the promised land. All of the other tribes were given a particular area of Israel in which to settle, to build houses, to raise crops, to start businesses. But the tribe of Levi did not. And so we might ask, how were they supposed to support themselves? Well, since they were doing the work of the Lord, they were supported by the tithe. So as the tithes were brought to the temple, they were put into storerooms. The grain, the new wine, the oil, and all the other tithes were stored. And from there, they would provide for the needs of the priests and the Levites and their families. We read a passage from the book of Nehemiah this week in our Bible reading plan about a time when evil men, when corrupt men, stopped the distribution of the tithes and the worship of God fell apart. Nehemiah is speaking in chapter 13, verse 10 and following. It says this, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them. And that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? And then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All of Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shelemiah, the priest, Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms, and made Hanan, son of Zakur, 
the son of Mataniah, their assistant, because they were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Now, after the wall in Jerusalem had been built, Nehemiah had to go back to Babylon. It was about 12 years after he had first arrived in Jerusalem. The Bible doesn't say exactly why he had to return for a bit or exactly how long he was gone. But we do know that when he returned to Jerusalem, one of his major opponents, a man that absolutely stood against him in rebuilding the Jerusalem walls so many years ago, a man named Tobiah, had been given a room in the temple. Now, the Bible tells us that Tobiah was an Ammonite. The Ammonites were a group of neighboring people who were typically at odds with Israel. And as an Ammonite, Tobiah was forbidden to even enter the temple, let alone to have a room and live there. But the temple priest at the time had married Tobiah's daughter, and that gave Tobiah way too much influence over the temple priest. And so the large room where the tithes were stored had been cleared out, and that room had been given to Tobias. And thus the priests and the Levites had nothing, so they had to leave the temple and try to find some way to provide for their families. Now when Nehemiah finally returns to Jerusalem from Babylon, he was furious. He threw Tobiah out, he gave orders to purify that room, and he reinstated the tithe system, as we heard a moment ago from Scripture. Again, tithing is one of the commandments that God gave his people through Moses. One of the other places where it's talked about is in Deuteronomy chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. It says, be sure to set aside a tenth of all that your fields produce each year. Eat the tithe of your grain new wine and olive oil, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks in the presence of the Lord your God at the place that he will choose as a dwelling for his name so that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. Here, the Bible makes very clear that while one of the purposes of the tithe is to support the work of worship of God. The primary purpose of the tithe is to remind us to always put God first in our lives. You see, we are to give God the first and the best of everything. It is said, show me your calendar and show me your checkbook and I will tell you what you value most in your life. So what is your calendar filled with? Do you set aside time in your schedule every Sunday morning to come to worship? Time for your band and your life group to meet each week? Do you set aside time for daily devotions and daily conversation with God in prayer? Do you spend your money on things that reflect your devotion and your love of God? Do you make giving your best to God, giving your tithe to God, your priority? 
I want you to hear this morning from one of our own members, Michael Estep, about the way that he and his wife, Marilyn, came to tithe. Take a look at this video. We first started tithing many years ago. Um, as, as we were more and more involved in our local church and, and uh, being youth coordinators there and teaching the kids about the many, many wonderful things about God, um, the question about how do we give was part of that. And um, it was a conviction for us to continue to find ways to serve God. We look at tithing, we look at giving as a form of worship. I can tell you though, at the very beginning, it was difficult. And I think it's difficult for any uh, person or couple who when they first begin to make that commitment to tithe, to be able to pull that 10% out and say, this is gone, this is going to the Lord. Um, but never have we ever been in a situation where that 10% caused us any financial difficulty or, uh, or we felt the, the, the need that, oh, next week we're not going to do that. Um, I, think that I think that apathy, if you will, um, is sometimes um, brought about because of the, the realization that there's other responsibilities and you've let the other responsibilities in your life cost-wise become higher than God. Does that, does that make sense? Um, so what was important maybe at one time, um, oh, I'm all gonna ho, I'm gonna start tithing or I'm gonna give this amount of money, then it's gonna be a sacrifice. After a little while, you kind of get away from that because the school bills come in or you have an extra bill that came in on the car repair that you didn't know about. And uh, how can I give that? And so that apathy maybe is influenced by an outside need. Well, everybody has outside needs. It's when you give, the, when you give that donation, that 10%, that offering first, first, write that check first. What a blessing. It, 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 you, will, you will be blessed. Amen. Thank you, Michael, for that testimony of your faithfulness in giving. You know, in some ways, Michael and Marilyn's story reminds me of the way that my wife Marge and I first came to grow in our understanding of and our willingness to tithe. It was probably way back in the early 1990s. Our three daughters were still pretty little girls at the time, and Marge and I were really just getting established in our own careers. This was way back in the day before God had called me into pastoral ministry. And at that time, we were giving about 2% of our annual income to God through the church where we attended every week. Interestingly enough, this is still the national average, 2% of what Christians give to the work of God through their church. Well, each year, our church had an annual stewardship campaign in the fall where members would make pledges of what they would give to the church in the coming year. And every year, we were asked, if you weren't tithing yet, to prayerfully consider tithing or to at least take a step up towards tithing. And I remember one year, Marge and I talked about it, and we decided that we would increase our giving by 1% every year until we finally reached 10% or a tithe of our income to God. And so that first year, we pledged to give 3% of our income to the church. And you know what? 
We didn't miss, miss a house payment or a car payment. We always had food on our table and clothes on our back, and all of our needs were taken care of. And so the next year, we pledged to give 4% of our income to the church. And again, we didn't miss any house or car payments. There was always food on our table and clothes on our back, and all of our needs were taken care of. And so the next year, we pledged to give 5% of our income. And you already know the outcome, don't you? Not one of our needs went unmet. And so finally, the next year, we said, you know what? God has been so faithful. We have never lacked for anything. So you know what? Let's just go for it. And that year, we tithed for the first time. And we've never looked back since. We still tithe to our church every single year. And as God provides, we are even able to give above and beyond that to some local ministries that God leads us to support. I really believe that the way we look at our possessions has a lot to do with the way that we look at our giving to God. You know, most of us look at the things we have as ours. This is my house, we say. This is my car. These are my cars. This is my job. This is my bank account, my investments. And you know, things aren't getting any cheaper these days, are they? I mean, we look at our house payment, the amount of money it costs for our mortgage and, and the insurance on that, and it's going to take at least probably about 30% of what I earn each year, what's mine, to be able to afford that. And transportation is important. I've got a couple cars. I've got insurance on that. Gas prices aren't going down anytime soon. I'm going to probably need another 20% of that. And let's face it, I have to eat. My family has to eat. We've got about 10% for food. We've got clothes on our back. Health insurance isn't going down by any stretch of the imagination. And you know, I've got to set some money aside for education for my kids. And so what we've got left is what we owe to God. But oh no, <laughs> I forgot to set any money aside for that vacation that we've wanted to take to the beach. And surely God is not against my family having some fun on a beach vacation. And so he won't mind if I just take a little bit off of that. And we do like to go out to eat, and there's new restaurants opening up all the time around here, and he won't mind if, if I take a little bit for that. And oh no, I forgot about Christmas, and it's here in three months, and I haven't set anything aside, and I've got to get something for Marge and for my kids and for my grandkids. God's in favor of Christmas. God kind of invented Christmas, didn't he? He won't mind if I take a little bit for that. And what about entertainment? Isn't it true that God just wants us to be happy? You see, then all we have left is our leftovers that we give to God. But I think we look at things backwards. I really do. I think that the way we think about what we have matters a lot. We think that all of these things 
are ours, my house, my cars, my things. But you know what? Everything we have and everything we are belongs to God, doesn't it? It's all God's. God created the heavens and the earth, and they belong to God. God created you and me, and we belong to God. God gave us our hands and our feet and our intellect. He gave us the strength that we have. He gave us everything that we have to do the job that we have been blessed with to earn an income. That belongs to God. All of these apples belong to God. And God lovingly, God graciously, God generously says, 90% of these I'm giving to you because I want you to have them. Be a good steward of them. Take good care of them. Use them as you please. And this, this tithe belongs to do the work of God's kingdom. You see, when we put God first in our giving, then everything else falls into place. When we put God first in our giving, then God will be first in every other area of our life. It's a simple truth that is at the very heart of giving. We give to God first. And when we do that, we receive spiritual blessings from the Lord. We come become benefit factors of God's provision, we get to be a part of a church whose primary mission is to meet the needs of others. Malachi's text for today finishes with these amazing words. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines of your field will not drop their fruit before it's ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. My friend, what do you need to change in order for God to have first place in your life? Is it inviting Jesus in and submitting your will to his will? Do you need to change the way that you look at the things that you have? Can you give God first place in your finances? What is preventing you from storing up your treasures in heaven is it fear? Fear of scarcity? Is it lack of faith in God? Is it selfishness? I want to go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to help us overcome whatever it is to let him be our first love. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given us everything in this life we thank you oh god that all that we have is yours and we ask you lord to give us an understanding that the way we look at our gifts that you've given us will have a great deal to do with how we give generously back to you 
Father, help us to be the people who use what you've given us with great wisdom to share with others. Lord, all that we have is yours. We put you first on the throne of our lives. Be in charge of our life, our homes, our families, our vocations, our finances, everything, God. We kneel before you. Where we've grown cold, God, we ask you to light a fire once again. Let it flame up in our hearts as we put you first in our life. For you alone are worthy. Be our first love. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.